0: Are we, are we live now? I'm
1: recording. You're, You're listening, listening to. to Mumbrella, Mumbrella. Mumbrella,
0: Mumbrella Cast.
2: Mumbrella Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burroughs.
3: And I'm Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly.
2: Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is our deputy editor, Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And reporters, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson.
3: Hello. Our guest later is Atland entrepreneur Ben Lilly. He'll be talking about coming back to McCann.
2: To be honest, there were
4: quite a few other agencies that I went and approached first with a view to acquiring them because my first decision was well, I do want to have my own agency again.
3: Buying Red Engine SCC.
4: It's, uh, it's been a seamless fit, uh, or we certainly hope it will, will be a seamless fit.
3: And whether creative lightning can strike twice.
4: Uh, One of the first things he said to me is, well, we're we're looking forward to you doing another dumb ways to die.
2: And later, we'll be revealing Mumbrella Pro's latest initiative, the Agency Scorecard, an in-depth analysis of Australia's most talked-about creative agencies. But first, the week in focus.
3: More COVID-caused job losses in the media world.
2: More COVID-caused awards cancellations.
3: Why K.O. can't do crash tackles at bus stops?
2: And can hypnosis save endangered tigers? It was a bit too good to be true. Last week we managed to go most of the Mumbrella cast, possibly all of it, without actually talking about the coronavirus crisis. No chance of that this week, though. Um, Let's start with the latest cancellations. Um, Viv, There's a lot of them in the awards front. Uh, Talk us through uh, the the various developments in awards land.
3: I mean, to summarise, there is no such thing as awards land anymore, Tim. Originally, even those that were going to try and do something different like a virtual ceremony such as the TV Week Logies, which is allegedly TV's Night of Nights, they've decided just to can the 2020 event all together and come back bigger and better in 2021. So actors, producers, TV shows will be eligible for all of the year just gone, plus the rest of the 2020 calendar year for the 2021 Logies. The Australian Commercial Radio Awards have decided not to proceed in October on the Gold Coast. They're looking into whether they do that virtually or how they proceed to celebrate the radio industry's achievements without actually having people all together in one room. And then there's the award awards as well, which is for creatives. And they've done a similar thing to many awards where they've extended deadlines, gone virtual with their judging, and they're going to have to do some kind of altered event as well because the prospect of having people in one room for the rest of 2020 just doesn't seem like it's going to be able to happen
2: look and i guess particularly with the logies there's not much point in doing them without the live event because it's it's not really about the entering and the 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 winning is it it's about the the pr and the occasion of having the glamour on the red carpet and all of those things so it, it feels like of all of the awards that could run virtually that would be the last of them
3: yeah look consumer viewing of the logies on channel 9 has been in steady decline for some time so They do need that live event, they do need the red carpet and so does TV Week to sell its coverage of the event. So much of it is the scoops from the parties, the interviews on the red carpet, who's wearing what, who did something silly, who did something funny. If you've just got a bunch of bored celebrities sitting around on a Zoom call, there's not going to be as much to work with in the coming weeks afterwards and the TV networks won't be able to put together hype reels based on it. So really... Those awards aren't about just sort of saying, oh, this was the most popular drama. It's about the showcase. It's about the actual in-person event. So I can see why they decided just to write 2020 off.
2: And I suppose the other thing is I've never been that sure whether the whole thing is uh, something that makes money or loses money for TV Week, the owner, uh, the magazine of, of, of which is published by Bauer Media, who've got their own tough times. Um, and again, we've 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 had some more information about that this week.
3: Yes. So Bauer Media is pausing a number of its weekly print titles uh, as the advertising market continues to slide. So as a result, they're going to make about seventy redundancies, and in addition, they're standing a lot of staff down temporarily uh, until the market. Recovers. So Bauer has really had to gut its sort of journalists and everyone working on its magazines this week. And it sort of feels like the beginning of the pain for Bauer because as we record this, they're allegedly meant to be signing off on the Pacific Magazines deal tomorrow. So we're recording this on Thursday, the 30th of April. And somehow they're standing, they're making 70 staff redundant, they're standing many more down. But tomorrow they have to pay forty million dollars for Seven West Media Specific Magazine. So I imagine it's a busy and complex time at Bower Media.
0: I think as well, if you look back through some of the stuff Bauer's faced recently, you know, they did that big ban on using freelancers, which followed a round of redundancies. And there were some reports coming out of Bauer that because they weren't allowed to use freelancers anymore, they were literally struggling to get magazines out the door. So you think now they can't use freelancers, they've just had a bunch of redundancies, they've had any kind of additional spending cut, it must be down to such bare bones over there that you really do wonder how does it make sense now for them to continue going with this deal. But I suppose everything's already cut and dry.
2: We also talked to Southern Cross Astereo this week. Um, Vivian, I think it was you spoke to Grant Blackley about another round of uh, cost savings there.
3: I think to say I spoke to Grant would be a bit of a stretch. I got an email statement from Grant uh, in, in response to more news coming out of Southern Cross Stereo. So SCA, which is responsible for the likes of Today FM, Triple M, and the Hit Network, they had already implemented ten percent pay cuts for a lot of their staff and on-air talent they've had to go a step further now and stand even more staff down. They said they've done a review of their workload and their workflow, when there's just not as much work to be done. So in a way, it's about getting their payroll costs down. But in another way, they're also saying like there is less work to do. So we do need to stand people down temporarily. I didn't get a confirmation of the number, but I do believe it's It's quite drastic, and the SCA is relying on the government's JobKeeper package, which means it has suffered at least a 30% decline in turnover.
2: And, Hannah, we also saw an update to the market from Domain, which is, of course, um, majority owned by Nine, but it's still on the ASX. This was a really interesting one because although they're asking staff to effectively take a 20% pay cut, they're actually offering – to make good on that by giving them that value value in shares in the company, which is quite an interesting way of thinking about it.
0: It is. And the announcement was quite interesting as well. I think a lot of the other um, announcements we've seen during this time have kind of been a Not so much a tail between the legs, but like a bit of a negative, you know, sadly, this is what we've been pushed to, whereas Domain kind of stormed in and made this sound like a massive positive thing. It was delivering its staff. They're calling it Project Zipline and they've given, um, they've kind of brought out a whole bunch of changes. But one of the main one is staff have been told they will either need to take a 20% hour cut and therefore pay cut. Or they will lose 20% of their salary and continue working, but they will be given share rights to cover that 20% of salary. Um, CEO Jason Pellegrino, in an announcement to the ASX, said that 90% of staff had opted for that share rights option rather than dropping their hours, which kind of surprised me a little bit just because I don't know whether that's the option I would have taken, but you know... Not really, you don't know what staff have been told in these situations, I suppose. Um, that was alongside a whole bunch of things that Domain have done. They've increased their debt facility, obviously, and we already knew they'd cut back on their print titles and cut back on marketing and stuff like that. So they're obviously like every other media company in Australia, feeling the pressure.
2: I guess particularly when real estate is is the name of the game, then that's uh, it's hard to think of a sector that will be worse hit.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think one of the really interesting things to point to in that announcement too is Domain's executive leadership team have kind of gone above and beyond a little bit Um senior leaders are taking a 30% cut and the CEO and board members are taking 50%, which is a lot more than we've seen a lot of other companies do. And I think in terms of staff morale, that's probably a pretty good step forward to say, look, we know we're asking you to do some fairly difficult things, especially during this time, but we're doing it too. And we're doing it more so.
2: Well, Britt, I know that you a few weeks back, uh, and gosh, it seems like so much longer. Um, uh, edited a guest post for us from Henry Innes, which was, uh, suggesting that agencies in the industry should think creatively about how they reduce their costs. And one of the suggestion was to, to. To give staff some sort of upside if they accept reducing costs. So, what do you make of the fact that Domain are doing this? You know, Domain's an ASX listed company. There are a lot of other ASX listed companies in our space that haven't done it yet. Should they be thinking of something like that rather than just uh, taking away the staff money?
5: I think it's clever because I think the risk for media companies on the other side of this will be that staff will remember kind of how they felt or how they feel they were treated or mistreated throughout this process. And so companies that have kind of forced things upon them or, you know, I'm thinking of Seven perhaps in particular here where it was, you know, we don't even need your agreement, you turn up to work and and this is what you'll be subject to, that that will eventually surely lead to turnover. I mean, people want to work for companies that they feel – valued at so I think putting putting this kind of initiative in place where you're also then giving people the incentive to work really hard because ultimately the quicker they recover the quickly you see you know share price improve Um, I'm not sure exactly when kind of these share rights vest or you know Those sorts of terms, but it's a it's a clever way to also lock people in for the long term too, right? I mean, I don't know, but if you if these shares vest over two or three years, people are probably going to stay two or three years to try and you know get some return on that. So, I think that you know thinking creatively about it, the the press release from Domain was definitely I think a little bit too positive, um, and you could kind of see right through it in that it was a cost-saving exercise first and foremost. But the fact that they can say, hey, but we're doing this and, hey, staff are getting this, is I think a lot more than a lot of other companies can do and say at the moment.
2: Yes, there's definitely some some marketing talk and some buzz phrases in there. Which, um, uh, Viv, uh, Mark Code is someone who can't be accused of not spelling things out plainly, which he did in an email to uh, his staff this week, which you promptly Uh, got to see um what was the news for ipg media brands staff
3: yes and i do need to stress here that mark code did not leak me that email somebody else did uh he wants to make that very clear that he's not the source of the leak Uh, but look there's when you're implementing changes like this um, at a company that large these things are bound to find their way into journalists hands what i do like about what Mark Code has done at IPG Media Brands, which looks after agencies such as Initiative, is that their reduction is only 10% in hours with a corresponding pay cut. but they're running it from the 1st of May until the 31st of December. A lot of other companies have implemented more drastic measures, allegedly for shorter periods of time. So a lot of them have said until the end of this financial year or for three months. And then we'll review it. I think IPG is being a bit more realistic that the pain involved in this process is not going to be over in June. We've still got a long way to go. So they've done a smaller hit over a longer period of time, which the more I think about, the more I think, oh, maybe I would prefer that approach because there's still more pain to come. We're yet to see the realities of the economy and unemployment. And once that data starts coming through and as it gets more and more negative, I think consumer sentiment is going to get worse and worse and we're going to panic more and then we're going to slide further. So by being a bit more upfront, like this is not going to be over in June, it's not going to be over in July, this sucks for all of 2020, let's all take a smaller hit for the whole year and see if we can get through this. I think it's quite a good strategy Um, and you're right, Tim, that. Mark Crote in his email to staff, which was leaked to umbrella, did very much spell it out that this is about us all sharing the pain to protect jobs. Everyone has to take, well, not has to take, uh, as Brittany knows, you can't force people to do it, uh, as she revealed in her investigation into how this all works. But it's better if everybody signs up for this pain so that jobs can be protected longer term.
5: I think what's interesting about kind of the leak, and as you say, Viv, you know, Mark, Code, and indeed all companies at the moment kind of trusting staff with this level of information, is that yes, there's a chance that this stuff will get leaked, but it's still probably worth it. So to, earlier today, I had a chat with Amy Buchanan, who's the CEO of OMD, uh, Omnicom Media Group Media Agency. And she was saying that you know, she's got 500 people within her remit and at the moment she's having to trust them with a level of information that she's never had to give them before to a point where, you know, she's over communicating and and she's stressed that this stuff will get out, but she thinks that making sure that staff have that knowledge and feel like they are being trusted and feeling like they're part of the process is kind of worth that risk. And so I wonder, you know, when CEOs write these emails where they're having to deliver bad news to staff, whether or not, you know, part of
3: it is shaped knowing that it might end up in the media's hands or oh, whether 100%, or not hundred percent, A hundred percent. I believe, look, they don't want it to leak necessarily. It's not a PR strategy. But you write that knowing that other eyes might see it. it very, very well-crafted. Lots of positive messaging, lots of support, lots of we're all in this together. IPG's email is crafted almost like they knew it could end up in my hands.
2: Well, Viv, let's not pretend that we've never had an email from a PR person forwarded his boss's or her boss's internal note saying, just in case you want to use any background. <laughs> so sometimes it not only is it crafted for it, but then it's part of the communication strategy 100%. Yes, uh, and,
3: and so that's why they're so careful in their, in their wording and very, very careful about you know, the laws around all of this uh, coronavirus stand-downs. Everybody's having to be very careful because you don't want to be the agency or the media owner that's caught out forcing your staff to do something illegal.
2: Well, another local uh, aspect of this is um, sometimes information can become out of date quite quickly. Um, Britt, you wrote about Australia's most trusted brand this week. Uh, Who might that be?
5: Well, it's interesting because I wrote the story and it was the angle was, you know, Band-Aid winning. And then I copied in all of the images of the category lists, you know, not the overall most trusted brand, but the most trusted brand in each category. And I was having a quick look, seeing if there was kind of any standouts. And I thought, hmm, cruise ships and princess cruises. Is that what we're going with? And so I rewrote the entire thing. Um, So, yes, Princess Cruises was named the most trusted brand in the cruise category. Now, it's worth pointing out that the survey was conducted in January, so this was obviously well before the Ruby Princess docked in Sydney and 600 people tested positive and 21 people have died from the virus since travelling on the ship before all of that. But I did follow up and say, when was the survey conducted and also when was the kind of editorial to support the survey written because as part of of all of this, Reader's Digest, which carries the research exclusively, said that the results are, and I quote, a truly accurate measurement of Australian consumer sentiment. And that apparently was written in recent weeks. I wasn't given a specific date, but that was completed recently. So, It does feel very dated. A lot can happen in a very short window of time as we're increasingly seeing. And I do kind of feel for, you know, Reader's Digest and and the company that conducted the research because who could have ever predicted that when, you know, you said that Princess Cruises was a cruise ship brand that you trust that suddenly that might not be the case and it's facing a criminal investigation and an inquiry. So, yeah, unfortunate timing, I think, is the the takeaway from this one.
2: Well, one more local development. Uh, the NRL, chatting to, to Nine and Foxtel, at least consulting them in some way, has set a return date. Um, let's explore whether we think it's going to happen. Um, Viv, let's start with you on this one.
3: It's allegedly returning on the 28th of May, but as Brittany just spoke about with Reader's Digest and Princess Cruises, this information gets out of date really quickly. The situation with the NRL is changing all the time. Indeed, before we jumped on this recording, there's new reports emerging that the players themselves are now saying we're not going to start training next week until we know exactly how much they're being paid. That has implications because there's players over in New Zealand from the Warriors who are meant to be jumping on a plane to get over here to start their quarantine before they start their training, before they start the competition in 28 days' time. There's also the fact that Nine and Foxtel, whilst tentatively agreeing to the date of the 28th of May, haven't really ironed out with the NRL how much they're going to pay for this changed season with no live crowds. There would also be the fact that A lot of sponsors would have shifted their spend from Nine and Foxtel when the competition was postponed. So they haven't necessarily pulled money completely from Nine or pulled money completely from Foxtel, but they would have had a budget for April, May that had gone to those broadcasters. They might have moved those ads into Lego Masters or gotten a reduced rate for the NRL's uh, repeat games that are showing on Nine. Still a lot of details to iron out in a short 28-day period, complicated further by the fact that the NRL players are just making it as difficult as possible for anyone to be on board and support them on getting back onto that field because, my God, they just love getting a headline and breaking the rules and it just feels like now's not the time to do that.
2: So what you're saying is it will be a bad PR look For in the days you're talking about how well you can follow protocols to have your players break all of the rules, go on a jolly boys camping trip, allegedly uh, breach uh, firearms laws, uh, and then upload those things to social media. You're saying that's not a good idea?
3: Look, you could say I'm a PR genius and I have (laughs) thoughts that nobody else has had before, but that's exactly what I'm saying, Tim. Uh, Peter Blandis from the uh, NRL is trying to say that the return of the competition means NRL players will be safer playing the NRL than they would be as regular members of the community. It is very hard to buy into that when they're having people over to their houses, filming TikTok videos, drinking together, going on camping trips, and then Lord knows what else they'll be doing when they're on the field in close contact and, you know, tackling each other and sweating on each other. I also don't even like the idea that that's a PR strategy, like that Peter has employed by saying, oh, the NRL players are safer than the general community why I mean even if that was true which is blatantly not I don't I don't like that message either like oh don't worry about it these overpaid buff heads are safer than you so get on board with the competition are you serious like why why are they safer than me I'll play an NRL game if it means I don't get the virus like just ridiculous (laughs) they need to employ me to do their PR
2: Well, we also saw some quarterly financial updates, which give us more of a global picture this week. Uh, I wrote about WPP's results on Wednesday night. Now, in China, which of course was pretty much what it was the first place to be hit, uh, WPP's revenue dropped by 30% in March. 30%. Don't think I've ever written about that sort of number in a single month before uh brit meanwhile you covered omnicom another one of the big holding companies uh, update what was the key information in the omnicom update
5: Less drastic than WPP, I think Omnicom's key message is it's going to get worse. And we kind of didn't see that fully in the first quarter results because the virus hit at the very back end of that first quarter. So net income dropped 1.9%, and earnings before interest, taxes, and amortization was down 2.1%. But They're definitely saying that, you know, the pandemic has affected clients. It will continue affecting clients. Clients have cut costs. They've postponed. They're reducing spend. And while, you know, some clients are doing well in some sectors and they'd like to think they've got kind of a diverse group of clients across industries, they can't deny that, you know, the continuing uncertainty, the continuing economic impact will really hit them and next quarter will probably be a lot
1: worse.
2: And Hannah, you wrote a feature this week looking at how Australia's newsrooms have been handling the COVID crisis. What stood out for you?
0: I did. Um, It's kind of part of a bigger conversation I've been having with a lot of publishers at the moment. And I think what particularly stood out with me, not just from that feature, but also kind of from the conversations I've been having, is how easy it's been easy, maybe not the right word, how um, kind of less problematic than expected it's been for a bunch of journalists to move from a bustling newsroom to reporting from, you know, their own homes most of the time. I think what's going to be really interesting, and I was talking to news.com.au's Kate Debrito about this, it's going to be really interesting when all this is over to see whether newsrooms are able to be a lot more flexible with their workers. I think, it could really open things up in this country if we don't necessarily need all our journalists to be based in metropolitan cities, if we don't necessarily, you know, of all the news.com.au journalists don't necessarily have to be based in Sydney and Melbourne, if we can also have them, you know, in regional outposts and they can still be doing the same, exactly the same role that metropolitan journalists are doing. I think that would be a really great way forward, especially at the moment considering how much regional news is suffering Um, so yeah, that was kind of the main takeaway. I think also the fact that readers are still not bored with the coronavirus, despite it being quite a few weeks at this point. And usually reader sentiment across the board is, you know, something peaks and then it's done. Um, Kate said it's only been in the last couple of weeks that she's been able to put anything else forward and readers have actually clicked on it. She said before that there was nothing. I think, um, It's also interesting how many publishers have kind of transitioned. Obviously, I think we've already spoken about Junkie had to reposition its travel vertical AWOL, Um, but that's been happening across the board. You know, News Corp have brought out a whole new section of their print mags, uh, their print titles, which are now being produced from home. Um, And The Guardian has also brought out a couple of new sections looking at, you know, how people are surviving in isolation broadsheet has had to do a massive pivot considering it covers events and food and drink, which are not things that Australians are doing very much of at the moment. But it's quite interesting, I think, how quickly all these titles and all these publications have managed to do that pivot. And it's also quite interesting considering I think now is a particularly tough time to be in a newsroom, not only because we're all being forced to work remotely, but we're all very aware of how tough the ad market is at the moment and how little money businesses are making. And I think that can either put a lot of pressure on journalists, but it can also maybe take away some of the motivation to kind of do new and exciting things. If you're like, well, what's the point? You know, it's nobody's paying as money. So who knows how many more days of this we have left. But I think even given those pressures, journalists and newsrooms around the country are really stepping up to the plate, and I think that's really impressive
2: to see. Well, next we get under the bonnet of CHE proximity and DDB. Our subscription service, Mumbrella Pro, launched a new initiative this week, the Agency Report Card. Mumbrella's senior content journalist, Abigail Dawson, is the Agency Report Card mastermind. She joins us now. Abs, before I ask you about your first findings, let's just talk us through the thinking behind the report card, please.
1: Sure. So, uh, the agency report card uh, was designed to be a bit of an analysis uh, and uh, a- analysis and, and scorecard, I guess, of, of the most talked about twenty-five agencies within Australia, uh, and that's and, and to we be did specifically
2: that- creative agencies.
1: Creative agencies, correct? Yeah, and we did that by putting together a panel, uh, an expert panel. So, you know industry judges uh, who have sat at the C-suite in lots of different companies and and are very familiar with with the creative industry alongside Mumbrella. So uh, the industry panel and Mumbrella work together to put together the the list of the 25 most talked about agencies. And I think it's important to note, you know, it's not a ranking of the best agencies in Australia, it's just the most talked about agencies. Uh, And then from there, uh, the jury uh, or, or the expert panel, sorry, were asked to, to analyse the agency based on their creative output, their business outcomes, their effectiveness and their culture. And then that was used to then create a, a, a final score or, or a percentage, if you like. Um, yes, yeah, so we, we sort of used that to, to put everything together.
2: And it's worth making the point that our our panel and uh we've we've been trying to train ourselves not to use the word jury, haven't we? Because we're we're being very clear it's not an awards. Um so the sort of backgrounds there from uh, relationship consultants, uh pitch doctors, recruiters, sort of headhunters, those sort of people, people who see a lot of these agencies up close.
1: Correct. And people who have also seen sort of under the hood of the agencies as well and uh, you know, would be quite familiar with the ins and outs and um the stats of the agencies
2: as well. Well, we're publishing two of these a week. The first two are CHE proximity and DDB. So let's start with CHEP. What did our expert panel find?
1: So CHEP did quite well, uh and it was overall quite a quite a positive result. They got 86%, so uh 21 for creative output out of 25, that is, uh, 22.5 for business outcomes and 22.5 for effectiveness and 20 for culture. Uh, I think something, uh, you know, that the jury was really impressed about was Chep's business model. Uh, I think that's something that really stood out for them and, and the way that they've evolved to to become really a creative consultancy, rather sort of than a, a data driven agency, uh, and how they've also rolled out their media offering—that's something that was uh, the, the panel were really Im- impressed by. Another thing that I think the panel were really impressed by as well is uh, Chris and so their their CEO. Um, he's made a massive impact on the business and I think the tight knit of the leadership team as well, you know, Ant White being Chief Creative Officer and, and David Holter being Chief Strategy Officer, the way they work together also really, really helps sort of the magic of that agency.
2: Well, it's it's quite an interesting contrast, isn't it? Because yeah, one of those really interesting things about CHE is it 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 feels like a model for where the industry is going in terms of that sort of mixture of innovation and also where uh data and analysis meets creativity as well. And I suppose that also brings us then on to quite an interesting contrast, which is DDB, which I get the impression that one of the things that our panel really liked about DDB is that DDB actually makes the most of that admirable heritage?
1: So, you know, one of my favourite quotes that the expert panel said is DDB does what every agency says it does, except DDB has a long history of actually doing it consistently and really well. So I think that to me actually sums up DDB's uh, report card. You know, they also did quite well. They uh, they got 79%. Um, and and. As you said, their heritage and their creativity and and the the work that they do for their brands around emotion is really what stood out for the expert panel with DDB.
2: Well, to see the report cards, you do need to sign up to Mumbrella Pro. If you're not sure whether it is actually for you, then there is a risk-free seven-day trial. As well as the agency report card, Mumbrella Pro offers access to hundreds of hours of exclusive video content and audio analysis our comprehensive industry directory with over 2,000 contacts across agencies, media and brands, and a growing collection of case studies into award-winning work. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro for more information. Next, The Week in Advertising. We now turn to the week in advertising. Zoe Wilkinson covers Mumbrella's creative beat. Zoe, where shall we start?
6: First up this week, we had the first campaign to air on television from online retailer Kogan.
7: What can you get at Kogan.com? You can order pizza, cook pizza, wear pizza, hug pizza, swim with pizza, sleep with pizza. Okay, too much pizza. Get a quick smart at Kogan.com.
6: So what struck me about this campaign from creative agency Hard Hat is how strong the strategy is. So what this campaign is really trying to do is sort of display the breadth of Kogan's product range that is available. And that even like worked for me because I've shopped on Kogan before, I've bought electrical goods, but I didn't really know sort of how much more you could Purchase on there, and I think now that in this sort of day and age where everyone's online shopping has drastically increased, um, I think it's a really strong campaign from them.
2: And I suppose if ever there is a time to be uh, getting the message out about the fact that you have a full service available in online uh, retail, then now is that moment. Um, and I suppose another another marketing campaign this week, uh, reactive to the circumstance, is. Danone's yogurt brand, Yopro, they have launched a fitness program for people in isolation. What's what's interesting about the context of this one?
6: So at the start of March, Yopro actually announced a range of athletes and Olympians that they had brought on as brand spokespeople for the Olympics. And at that time they alluded that they had Uh, a campaign about to start that tied in with the Olympic broadcast. Now, as we know, the Olympics have been postponed until 2021. So what this campaign really indicates to me is how quickly the brand Yopro and its agencies Emotive and Lampoon Group have managed to turn around such a massive amount of content in such a short period of time and really adapt to the circumstances. So what they've actually produced is 100 pieces of content for this 66-day-long fitness program that includes sort of workouts, meal plans, mindfulness sessions, and that sort of thing. And it's actually also utilising some of the Olympians that they brought on board for the fitness program as well, which I think is a really good way of bringing on these people who have obviously signed contracts with, maybe paid a bit of money, and now the Olympics isn't happening. So you've got to get the most out of that.
2: And another p- new piece of work this week, Tasmanian boot brand Blunston uh, released a campaign to celebrate its 150th birthday this week. For 150 years, we've been warned by those who never took the easy way. the Easy option. or made an easy choice.
7: We were with them when they went to war and rallied for peace. We've helped win battles, turn heads, and rub what's
2: possible in impossible's face. So Zoe, uh, I suppose when we talk about heritage and boots, we might think about RM Williams first, another big Australian brand, which I suppose is the the challenge for Blundstone. So um, who was the agency and what do you think of this one?
6: Um, So, the agency was BMF and this campaign's actually been on my radar for a little while now because BMF was appointed by Blundstone last year and at that time they said they would be working on the 150th birthday campaign to come out this year. So, I have been sort of expecting this one and it, it didn't really strike me with much impact. I mean, it's your 150th birthday of a brand. I'm expecting, you know, big things and maybe it's just sort of an unfortunate result of the circumstance. I mean, we've seen the campaign itself gathers together a lot of found footage of people wearing blundstone boots and I was throughout history.
2: And is that all genuine fan footage or is some of this being recreated for the ad or don't we know?
6: I'm not 100% sure. I think some of it has been created for the ad and then some of it is found footage, Uh I sort of like, I didn't really have the same impact on me that it probably could have if if we were outside of sort of the COVID-19 pandemic, because we've seen a lot of sort of gathered footage ads already from a number of different brands, like different sort of message, obviously different context, but same technique.
2: And just finally, from the week in advertising, Ad Standards, the industry watchdog, has banned another ad, this time from KO, the sports streaming service. It showed a woman sitting at a bus stop watching a game on her uh, her device, her phone, uh, while an NRL player – I think it was an NRL player uh, – tackled another player and sort of smashed through the glass of the shelter uh, while well, she didn't sort of even even react because she was so engrossed in watching the game on the screen – Uh, What was the issue with this one, Zoe?
6: So, unsurprisingly, Tim, the complaints about this campaign were to do with it displaying an act of violence. And ad standards rulings actually come down to a lot of detail in the ads. So, for violence complaints to be upheld, violence has to be shown in a context that is unrelated to the product that's actually being sold In its defense, Foxtel said the campaign takes away the realism to sort of show how absorbed you can be in the sport no matter where you are. And while ad standards sort of uh, understood that point, it really came down to the context of the action that's happening. So while a tackle in the NRL is a very sort of normal action, like you wouldn't think twice about it on field, the fact that it was happening – in public and damage to property occurred with them sort of smashing through the glass screen. That sort of indicated an act of violence and also an action that could be easily recreated by an innocent set of bystanders, Bystanders, sorry. Well, I'm not
2: sure they'd be that innocent <laughs> if they chose to smash through I the mean, wall. I mean, yes,
6: I regretted that word <laughs> as soon as I said it actually, but that was kind of the tipping point for ad standards to uphold that complaint.
2: Next Hypno advertising.
7: Sleep, relax, sleep, sleep, and sleep, relax and sleep. When I count to three now, you'll be wide awake and you'll believe that you are a tiger in the forest. You're a family of tigers, you are a cub. Tiger Cub, and you are Tiger Mum.
2: That comes from one of the more unorthodox marketing strategies of the week. Hypnotist Peter Powers convinced a group of volunteers that they were tigers, then showed them what it would be like to fall victim to poachers. Let's he- hear a little bit more where it all gets a bit serious. One, two, three, you're wide awake. Wake up. <sighs>
7: Cubs, you're young and carefree, having fun. Mum, you love your cubs. You're very proud of them. And, Mum, your cubs are hungry now. You need to hunt. You need to find them food. Look, there's a waterhole. Go over and investigate. When I clap my hands, you'll believe something has trapped your leg. You don't know what it is. No matter how hard you try, you just can't get away. (laughs) You can't get free. (coughs) What are you going to do? Why are you trapped? Maybe something's coming to get you. Maybe something is going to get your cubs. Your mama's never left you this long. You're starting to worry, you're anxious. Now sleep slowly, or said sleep, relax, sleep. You have no concerns now. You have no concerns. You just relax.
2: So uh, a cynic might say that, that uh that volunteer certainly sounds like maybe they went to NIDA at some point. Um that was put together by ad agency Leo Burnett for what I assume was Pro Bono Client International Tiger Project. Um What do we think? Who wants to come at that one first?
3: Look, I feel like I'll just continue wearing my negativity hat given my earlier rant about the NRL. I hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, Goodness me, I, I think it's a really bizarre concept that in order to understand the plight of tigers or feel empathy for what they're going through we need to see it demonstrated by privileged humans and that's the only way yes. that humans could understand like we don't need to see a human being a tiger in trouble when the tigers are actually in trouble like surely seeing footage of the tigers going through that is far more distressing than a white woman in a room play acting and making ridiculous noises like it's not. She's not even having her real life, real human children like taken away from her temporarily, which would at least humanize it and make it like, oh god, like that's that's what it's like for the tiger. It's 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 a woman being ridiculous uh, in a completely fake situation. Like if we're going to humanize it, bring her kids on and like do something, you know, <laughs> that. It's just it's so absurd. If you watch Tiger King, the Netflix documentary, that's obviously gone nuts. There's genuinely distressing footage in there of things that are happening to tigers. People have watched that and felt distressed. Seeing what's happening to those animals is enough. And and if it's not enough and, and you're not an empath and you're a sociopath or you're a psychopath, then seeing some woman being ridiculous is not going to change your mind.
2: Brittany, let me read a quote to you, because I'd like to know if you think this is more awards fodder than intended to develop behaviour change. So this was actually from uh, the uh, the website Campaign Brief in the comments thread. Look into my eyes, not around the eyes. Look into my eyes, you're under. You're going to think this is an amazing creative idea and not the most misguided film you've seen in modern times. You will shower it with praise and love and all kinds of shiny trinkets. Three two, one, you're back in the room. Do you agree with that sentiment, Britt?
3: Look,
5: I think the length of the film, it sits at over four minutes, kind of al- already I'm kind of like, okay, is this kind of gearing towards an awards win? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I agree with Viv that I felt more disturbed by even just hearing the fact in Tiger King that there's more tigers in captivity in America than there are in the wild around the world that that really stuck with me and I'm still thinking about that fact weeks later i felt uncomfortable watching this and it wasn't uncomfortable in a way that's kind of good and provocative and you know when when people say like it's good that you feel discomfort it's good that you feel confronted you know that leads to action It wasn't kind of that kind of uncomfortable. It was just kind of what's going on here. Um, And I was kind of, yeah, unsure. It, it, It felt weird. And then I had my partner watch it and about four times throughout, he was just like, this is ridiculous. I hate this. This is so stupid. And just thought the whole thing was completely ridiculous. So it was interesting as well hearing from someone who wasn't thinking about okay, is this a good ad and is this kind of good industry work, but just is this good full stop? Um, And his answer was a resounding no.
2: (laughs) Zoe, Adland is your beat. Uh, Hopefully you can come to the defence of poor old Leo Burnett.
6: For me, it is quite sort of effective seeing for me at least, I mean, I know it wasn't for you, Viv, but seeing a woman in so much distress like she was when she was hypnotised to believe she was a mother tiger and she was in that trap, like it was quite effective in some respects for me and I would like to think that I'm an empathetic person, but what they said in the information they gave us was, you know, the more empathy you feel, the more you're likely to, donate a lot of money to the cause, it hasn't fully inspired me to donate to the cause.
2: Now, Hannah, um, are you an empathetic person? Do you now feel for the plight of the tigers having seen that?
0: I think um, nobody in this current conversation will be surprised to know that I probably care about tigers more than I care about the regular person around me, um and I would have cared about this project pre this ad. I think if anything, this ad made me care a lot less about the tiger project. I completely agree with Viv. I think the fact that we need to use you know a white woman portraying a tiger to st- create empathy and we can't use an actual tiger is just bizarre. I also just think. I mean, I kind of agree with what Britt said in terms of a four minute long commercial is obviously not a regular ad. And unless, you know, there are different versions of it going around that I haven't seen, it very clearly reads like a bit of a, you know, a bit of an award fodder project. I also think it kind of doesn't really go to the actual heart of the problem. It's very much choosing the bits that it's going to highlight you know what will draw a lot of attention to this ad is a grown woman crying as she imagines her cubs are taken away when actually a lot of the problems around poaching in particular are that for people living in those areas it's you know their best economic option and also as both Viv and Britt spoke about you know on Tiger King it was It's a legislative issue. It's the fact that people can still just buy tiger cubs for as little as $5,000 and just own them. And that's why people are still out there breeding tigers, because you can breed a bunch of tigers and make a ton of money off it. So I I think the fact that this ad deliberately chose to find the most emotional point of it, to then attempt to humanize it by forcing bystanders, allegedly, to be hypnotized, also Do we have anyone checking up on these bystanders? Because I'm really worried for this woman's mental health going forward. If she really is just a random person off the street, she's going to be waking up in the middle of the night for the next, like, 10 years of her life remembering herself back in the jungle, losing her cubs. Like, I don't really understand what the entire point of this project was other than to make us all feel really bad. Did you not see the film, though, Hannah? He clicked his fingers twice and she was happy, not sad. It was over for her. Can he come into my house and click his fingers and make me happy, not sad, because (laughs) that is what I would like, please. (laughs) Next,
3: Tim and Zoe talk to Adland entrepreneur Ben Lilly.
2: This week saw Ben Lilly make a second acquisition announcement after his purchase of McCann's Australian advertising operation back in February. He joins us now.
6: Um, ben, thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella cast. Um, Thanks for before having we, me. Before we talk about um, the McCann acquisition and how the agency is going, we want to talk a bit about Red Engine. You've bought the Red Engine brand and the assets what was it about that agency that appealed to you?
4: Well, Red Engine as a creative content agency in particular uh, has done some fantastic work over the last uh, couple of years. That They've also uh, achieved some, some great recognition for that um, and the conversations that we have been having have also occurred at a same, the same time as a lot of conversations we've been having with the Red Republic around how we can really scale and expand upon their creative content offering uh, coming from a public relations and a creative public relations service offering. So really when it was Julian Townley who first made contact with me a little while ago and when Julian touched base and I had a look at the kind of work he was doing, we could see the fit straight away and it was just uh, perfect timing really at that time. Uh, in terms of coinciding with exactly our plan, what our plans have been around uh, scaling and expanding on that Red Republic offering. So from our point of view, it's a, it's been a seamless fit, uh, or we certainly hope it will will be a seamless fit. We're obviously going through the integration uh, right now, uh, but it, it's a it's a really exciting evolution uh, for both Red Engine in terms of how they can expand their creative content offering, but also for the Red Republic, in how they can expand and and build upon their creative public relations services.
6: And what is your sort of definition on creative content? Like what is it about what Red Engine actually does as an agency?
4: Well, it's predominantly uh, social. Uh, They're a creative agency and they've done all sorts of work. They have done advertising before. Uh, They've done content in, in all its forms. Uh, But they have a particular strength in uh, social content, uh, which obviously plays very well to um, particularly the owned and earned uh, amplification that the Red Republic does uh, through their public relations services.
2: So, Ben, it's a relatively unusual way of making acquisition. It had already gone public that um, Red Engine was in the hands of administrators. Um, so in this situation, what happens to the Red Engine staff? Are they all guaranteed jobs with you? Well, really, it,
4: it depends upon how – obviously, it starts with uh, us integrating the Red Engine's assets, uh, which start with a, a lot of their tangible assets in the business – but then that also includes intangible assets, one of which is uh, their, uh, their clients, their client lists and contracts and so forth. So we're obviously uh, engaging through Julian Townley with uh, Red Engine's clients, for those of, of whom want to continue their services uh, now with the Red Republic. Uh, and as they uh, come on board, then we can continue to bring uh, more and more Red Engine staff on board so this is literally uh, day one we've just announced uh, the transaction today so too early to be specific about you know the, the exact numbers uh, but that's the process that we'll be
2: following so I'm, I'm taking that as a maybe rather than a definite for everybody coming across now you talk about julian townley coming across as red engines founder now mm-hmm sometimes maybe even often with this sort of deal the the founder sticks around for not very long just sort of beds in the clients and then leaves and I I suspect you'll say well that's not going to what happened when I sold smart to McCann I stayed for many years but I'm wondering what's going to happen with Julian If the, is he locked in for a certain period of time or, or will he be there for the long haul
4: well look, you know nobody's ever locked in uh forever I suppose and uh Julian is certainly uh, really excited and motivated by by the opportunity we're really excited to be welcoming him and his team into the business and you know my philosophy I guess or approach to people and and culture is is never to try and lock anyone in or you know I, I would never want to try and force anyone to to have to stay with us uh, or work with us but really to ensure that they're fulfilled and and motivated and uh, and that's what we've been talking with Julian about is making sure that we can offer uh, the conditions where he, he and his team can really thrive, where his clients can really thrive so that uh, he does want to stay with us, you know, for a, for a long, long time. Uh, and yes, I, you're right. I would say, well, I stayed after uh, McCann uh, acquired Smart, uh, but also we've done a number of acquisitions like this before. Uh, we've done a, a quite a few acquisitions, but we, some of those have been acquisitions where we have acquired the business and business assets rather than the company. And the process in the past is always the same, which is um, when you acquire business assets, you do actually effectively have to sign over all of those things that you're buying in, into your into your uh, your own company, which includes the staff and employment contracts. But we still have founders from businesses that we acquired. In fact. Uh, back in the smart days so one of our key senior national people ben davis uh came across with a business that we acquired probably about 15 years ago now and he's now um, one of our executive creative directors so he's been with us for 15 years and and uh been happily thriving and surviving (laughs) through both the smart journey and also the mccann journey and in fact he also works with with uh, the red republic now so he will actually be be working directly with uh julian so as I say, it, it, you know Julian, it, he's his own person, and and it will be up to him whether he absolutely wants to stay with us, you know, for however long he wants to stay. But my job is to try and create the conditions whereby he really does want to stay and and work with us and grow with us, um, just just as all, all of our other senior people have.
6: And Red Republic was an agency that you took on with your acquisition of McCann. It was kind of like McCann's own PR agency, how will the addition of Red Engine's capabilities um, impact making Red Republic its own sort of standalone um, agency?
4: Well, Red Republic already was and and still is a standalone agency. Uh, They partner with McCann on various clients. Uh, Probably the majority of Red Republic clients already are their own uh, clients who they independently service uh, so the guiding principle that we, that we really have with all with the different op, um offerings that we have across our group is we absolutely obviously collaborate wherever and however we can for the benefits of our clients um you know our philosophy isn't about trying to ever force services from other groups onto clients who, who may not want or need them but when there's an opportunity for the different service offerings that we have nationally to be able to collaborate uh, from the same uh, strategy and, and from the same creative platform across different service offerings, well, that's, that's obviously better for our, our clients and, and that also happens to be better for our business. So we do that with Red Republic wherever we can uh, and with McCann wherever we can. But so they, you know, again, McCann's now a national independent offering, Red Republic's also a national independent offering and Red Engine uh, will become a part of that national independent offering as well.
2: Well, um, we, we've already talked a little bit about McCann and before that Smart. Um, I mean, the, the McCann deal was a pretty unusual one. So for, for our listeners to recap, you were the CEO and the founder of Smart Advertising, which uh, if I recall correctly, you actually started in 2000. So congratulations on uh, approaching your 20-year your 20, 20 anniversary any moment Thank now. You. Um, you then sold it to IPG um, to, uh, and McCann back in 2011. Um, and certainly from where I, I sat, it, it it effectively looked like a reverse takeover. So you you effectively rebranded Smart as McCann, which hadn't been going great in this market um and then ran that new organization which was quite unusual in itself but then you left you headed off to to france for a couple of years and then you came back and bought it and obviously there's so many unusual things about that not least the idea of a multinational selling one of their assets and the brand name the rights to use the brand name associated with it how does something like that happen
4: well look one of my uh, mantras or operating philosophies which often comes back to haunt me, especially now that I've got older children, is if you don't ask, you don't get. And uh certainly that was something that we used to say quite a lot in our smart days. You know, we, we often pitched for brands and business that frankly internally our staff didn't think that we were either ready for or big enough for. But you know, I always thought, well you you know, nothing mentioned, nothing gained. And there's all sorts of cliches around (laughs) that I could roll out. But my favourite is if you don't ask, you don't get. And so that's a a philosophy that certainly served me well over the many years. And uh, um, that's partly how the reverse takeover happened uh, with McCann as well when they approached us. We asked for the the national management roles and and in the end they agreed to that. And uh, I never thought having worked at McCann many years earlier as a junior Creative. I never thought I'd end up uh, running the place, but uh, again, I asked for it and, and I got it. And no one was more surprised uh, at that than me, I suppose. Um, and so, I suppose when, when I came back, I really thought about the fact that I want to come back into the industry. There's there's this so much that I, I really did miss about um, the advertising and, and working marketing communications. You know, mainly the people, obviously, but the creativity, the work, all that kind of thing. But I really thought, well, if I want to if I'm going to come back into the industry, having been fortunate enough to be able to leave McCann and leave the industry on my own terms, how would I like to ideally do that? And to be honest, there were quite a few other agencies that I went and approached first with a view to acquiring them because my first decision was, well, I do want to have my own agency again. I I didn't want to just step back into another job. Um, I I loved being part of McCann. I didn't love (laughs) working for you know, re- reporting up through a network. Um, I am an entrepreneur. I'm not the I'm not the best employee, to be honest. Uh, and I'm better at working for myself. I think so. Coming back, I wanted to be able to do it on my own terms. So I approached a number of independent agencies. Um, some of whom were enthusiastic. Some of whom were very uh, trepidatious <laughs> in talking to me uh, and concerned about what I may or may not do if I were their owner. Um, so. I guess suppose the the idea then occurred to me over time like well what about if I could go back to McCann and what about if I just asked the question having seen them all, already divest uh, McCann Health a number of years earlier maybe they would be open to doing a, a similar kind of transaction with me maybe I could actually buy not just smart back but actually buy the the national operation and run it as an affiliate because being part of the global McCann network previously I knew how these kind of affiliate transactions do work in a number of markets Australia is not unique there are other markets where McCann has, uh, you know, licenses its brand effectively to locally owned and, and independently run businesses. So that was the proposal that I, that I put back, um, again, straight to Harris Diamond, who's our, the McCann uh, World Group Global CEO. Uh, again, you know, I just figured, well, don't ask, don't get. I'll ask Harris. He can only say no. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't say no immediately. He was kind of surprised, I think, to hear back from me. But that was the beginning of the conversation, and here we are.
2: And, uh, you know, I think most people would say that you're an astute business person, so I'm presuming that you paid less for the agency this time round than you sold it for the first time round. Is, is that a reasonable observation?
4: Uh, well, obviously I can't disclose the commercial details, but, um, I mean, the way I would put it is I was very lucky to be able to um, sell smart in the first place to McCann and, and we did okay out of that transaction um, and now I have been I thought I was lucky then to have the opportunity to be able to give a good amount of that money back to McCann um, that was a month before the COVID-19 crisis hit so probably not the most astute business decision to be honest buying an independent agency just before <laughs> four weeks before all of this crisis hit um, but uh, yeah, you know, I haven't lost all my money yet, so I'm still okay for now.
6: And what is the value of the McCann brand in this sort of situation where you are aligned with the global network, but you also operate sort of independently? Is there a potential rebrand on the horizon
4: for McCann? N- no, de- no, definitely not. Uh, I mean, really. Well, firstly, I think the, the, McCann, the value of the McCann brand, I think, is incredibly strong. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm biased, but, uh, you know, McCann is the Cannes uh, uh, Lions global creative network of the year. Um, and it will be for two years now because there's obviously no Cannes Lions this year. Uh, it's also the global Effie's network of the year. It was just announced last week to be uh, once again for a, a, a number of years running, probably about four or five or six years running, uh, one of the um, ad, is it the uh, Adweek A-list agency of the year. So it's got a, a gazillion global accolades, obviously. So McCann globally, you know, in my completely unbiased, humble opinion, is far and away the best global network. So um, firstly, that the brand alone has great value and great equity. Uh, in Australian context, but secondly, doing a deal like the deal that I did with McCann, really the the, the the primary value though is that if you become an affiliate, so I effectively I license the McCann brand and 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 the rights to operate their offices here in Australia. So with that, then comes all of their global client relationships, uh, which include everyone from Coca Cola to Microsoft to L'Oreal. Mastercards, you know, there are so many brilliant global brands who work with McCann uh, that if I didn't, I mean, it would just be stupid if I didn't use the McCann name. I would, I would then lose the rights to service all of those brilliant clients, um, and I'd literally just be throwing my money away. So there's, there is no way that I would change the McCann name. Uh, I think, it'd be, I mean, it'd be very difficult to buy. There's, there's um, I don't think there's any local independent agencies, um, as in local independent Australian brands, that are as strong as a global uh, brand like McCann applied locally. So, um, on, on many many levels, it makes sense for me to leverage the McCann brand as much as I can to be the absolutely best McCann agency that we can, um, and uh, you know, roll with all the benefits that come with that, which also not just the clients, but it also includes all of the, the global. McCann IP, tools, processes, support. There's a gazillion good things about being uh, part of McCann.
6: And sort of what's on the horizon for you? Um, You've alluded to many more acquisitions coming up and ones that you're hoping to close. Can you give us a hint of what direction in the industry we should be looking at?
4: Well, look, I'm. I can't really give a hint because, again, the, uh, um, all of the transactions that we contemplate, the very first thing we do is sign an, an NDA. Uh, but um, it's what exactly what I've said uh, publicly uh, and what we've discussed publicly, which is I, I see really there's a big con- consolidation opportunity in Australia. That Australia is a, is a very sophisticated uh, market, it's very advanced in terms of the quality of the agency offerings across all areas from creative to digital to public relations to media to everything else in between. So we're a very sophisticated market. We have incredible talent. Uh, I'm focused on the eastern seaboard, so Melbourne, uh, Sydney, and Brisbane. Uh, We have incredible talent. We also have incredible talent in Perth and Adelaide and everywhere else, of course. Um, But the one problem that we have in Australia is that it's incredibly fragmented. There, there There are too many agencies um, for our relatively on a global um, scale for our relatively small client so you know effectively I'm I'm applying the same strategy kind of a, a roll-up strategy that we did at SMART which worked incredibly well for us then as an independent agency but I think that we have a, an even stronger proposition now now that I'm part of we're still independent but I'm part of a global or multinational uh, agency offering and platform so I'd like to continue to to scale what we've got with McCann and also with the Red Republic and I, and I do have Smartback as a brand as well and, um, and other offerings. So I'd like to be able to scale that nationally by continuing to roll as many good um, people and clients as I can into a national offering. Part of that will be just through pitching and organic growth, uh, but the truth is pitching is, is, is quite a, a difficult and time-consuming and money-consuming, it's expensive, you know, way to growth, and often there are other opportunities where you can find really good, really talented, motivated entrepreneurs who who are doing a great job of running their own business. But uh, sometimes it's 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 more fun, more fulfilling to be part of something a bit bigger. And also sometimes it could be a headache running an independent agency with the administration and the all the th- the things that go with you know the the downsides of, of running your own company. So I'm really just looking for the, the best entrepreneurial local talent that I can find who wants to become part of something bigger. Uh, you know, we will be Australia, if we're not already, um, in fact, we probably are already Australia's biggest independent, independently operated agency, um, but uh, we're also part of the world's biggest global agency network. So that's a, that's a really unique proposition that we have. Uh, The number one benefit of that is for our clients in terms of the, the talent and the integrated services that we can bring to them. But there are huge benefits that come with that as well for the people who work with us nationally as part of our group.
6: And speaking of your acquisition strategy that you executed on behalf of SMART, that was during the global financial crisis, and when we spoke earlier this week you said that history does not repeat, but it rhymes. What exactly did you mean by that when you sort of reflect on the current climate?
4: Well, the crisis right now is very different from the global financial crisis. From a business point of view, it it looks to me to be much worse. What I'm seeing is, is much worse. So, of course, there are similarities and it's easy to draw parallels between what we're seeing now and what happened during the global financial crisis and perhaps what's happened during other uh, recessions or economic downturns in the past, but the truth is, what we're seeing right now is is, is a very unique moment in time. Um, obviously, just in terms of just the crisis in, in itself, but also economically, and also in terms of how it's impacting a people-based business like ours. The fact that um, our people do have to work from home, and and that comes with uh, its own challenges, um, and the fact that Um, during a business downturn, uh, a a business like ours where your people are your number one asset, there are many agencies who've really been impacted in in that regard and and probably taken um, some quite severe steps in cutting back some of those people. So I think that while on the one hand you can draw some parallels between now and what's happened in the past, I do think that this is a a very unique, um, that we face unique economic challenges right now that we haven't seen before and so we're navigating them in different ways. So the context of um, what we were talking about the other day was around the fact that I had I was fortunate I guess firstly to get through the, the global financial crisis. you know we, smart did almost topple during that and that was an incredibly humbling uh, and very challenging time to be running a business like ours. but we did get through uh, and so I was able to take learnings from that that I have been able to apply this time around. But I'm also very conscious of the fact that this is still unique, and it you know we're facing our own new challenges as well during this period that frankly I haven't faced before, so just as I have in so many other points of my career, you know we we're, we're kind of still making it up a bit as we go along, and for now it seems to be working okay
2: well, Ben, let's talk about your creative ambitions uh something that happened not that long after you sold smart to McCann was. Dumb Ways to Die, which became this huge global sensation, possibly a once-in-a-career thing. Is it a once-in-a-career thing? Can you can you be involved in something of that sort of scale another time?
4: <laughs> well, <clears throat> obviously, our ambition is to create a, a number of, of other not dumb ways to die per se, but certainly creative. Blockbusters. Dunways today is definitely a once-in-a-career thing because we created a new record at that time, uh, just for the sheer number of awards that Dunways today won, and there are a number of shows after that then, including Cannes, that then changed their, um, you know, their entry criteria and and how shows are awarded. So I think that mathematically, I don't think that any um, campaign now will actually ever be able to achieve the same number of awards unless uh, the Lions and a number of their other shows do change their categories uh, or their award criteria again. So on the one hand, yes, that's a, that's a once-in-a-lifetime career. But on the other hand, look, we, we um, created a number of other campaigns, many other campaigns that, that were similarly awarded both for creativity and effectiveness after Done Ways to Die. And on the one hand, it's, it's you know, obviously I'm incredibly proud of everything that we achieved with Dumb Ways to Die. Um, and, and I'm not afraid to say that. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it probably did overshadow a little bit the many other really good things and, and the many other good campaigns that we were able to launch after "Dumb Ways to Die" as well. Um, and we we went on to win um, Lions and and, effect, and Effies. I think every single other year after "Dumb Ways to Die," and so Done Ways to Die" was the beginning of a of a great creative renaissance in Australia for McCann. Uh, and also for McCann Globally as a network. And, of course, when I did approach um, Harris again and and we started talking about me coming back into the network this time around, uh, one of the first things he said to me is, well, we're we're looking forward to you doing another Dumb Ways to Die. That's a really bad Harris Diamond uh, accent, but uh, anyway. Um, And uh, so, look, our ambition is, is to absolutely be the best creative agency that we can be. You know, our global creative chairman, Rob Riley, uh, has a mantra that creativity is the only way to survive and that, that is something that our global network lives and breathes and we do here in Australia as well because we have seen firsthand through all of our campaigns how creativity and effectiveness are inextricably linked. You cannot have great effective work uh, without great creative work and so that is absolutely what, what our own uh, objective and mantra is that creativity is the only way to survive. Does that mean that we'll be able to do another Dumb Ways to Die? Well, probably not from in terms of the sheer numbers. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd love I'd love to be able to create something new all over again that is equally as groundbreaking and, I guess, equally as revolutionary and also just as equally as fulfilling for our people and, and for our clients. Um, we haven't done it yet. I've only been back two or three months and, unfortunately, I, I, I don't see another Dumb Ways to Die in our back pocket quite yet. Uh, but rest assured that when there is one um uh, uh, we'll, you <laughs> you'll know all about it, and I and many others will will jump straight in to take all the credit for it
2: <laughs> well, just finally while we're on the subject of um, creativity um let me just read you this quote which um you, you actually said to Zoe when she interviewed you a few uh, months back um when you you, you first came back um I don't really see any of the kinds of players that perhaps we've seen in the past where we have some really strong, dominant creative agencies historically in Australia. And I don't really see anyone being that kind of dominant creative player in that regard, which the, the way I read that is that um, you're not that impressed with your competitors at the moment. Is, uh, <laughs> is that the right interpretation?
4: <laughs> I think that's a nice um Tim Burrows' umbrella spin on my <laughs> on my quote. Um, obviously, that's not necessarily what I meant. It's not meant as a slight against anyone in the industry. I guess what I mean is, you know, I mean, I've been in this, this industry originally as a, as a creative and then as a CEO, and I don't want to be CEO anymore, so that's why I've called myself creative chairman now, even though I'm not really that creative anymore. Um, but it, probably almost three decades I've been doing this, two and a half decades. And there's always been that one or two agencies that really stood out. There, you can, you know, when you ask someone, "Hey, who, who's really smashing it right now?" And for many years in the past, you know, it, it was um, particularly being in Melbourne, people would always say, "All right, it was Cleminger, Melbourne," uh, or for a while um, it was McCann, um, or you know, obviously in Sydney, you know, we had the Monkeys. So you've, you've got those names that Im- immediately jump in into jump out of people's mouths or or the jump into your head and it's it's an exercise that I've kind of done since you know since I knew I was coming back and also since I've been back is all right well who who are the players that, that are just who are smashing it right now who are the really creative dominant forces in our industry again in an industry where creativity is the only way to survive and where if you're going to to really grow and thrive as a creative business you have to do outstanding creative work. Um, and so it's just my own personal view, and, and also my experience, in talking to a lot of other people, is that there's there's not really there's still agencies that are doing great work, and I have immense respect for all the agencies that we that we compete with, including Still Cleminger, and including a number of the others that, that we are pitching against at the moment. But I just don't see really one that's you know or two even that are kind of really dominating or really smashing it. And I'm not arrogant enough to, to. I am, of course, very arrogant. Many people have, have said that about me in the past. So that's fine. But I'm not arrogant enough to say, "All right, well, McCann's going to be it now. We're, we're going to just going to fill that void." But I do have great creative ambition, and certainly our ambition would be to be able to, you know, to be amongst the, those those couple of great agencies, if not the great agency that people can talk about and say, "Wow, um, it is great to see McCann is back again," and didn't think they could do another Dumb Ways to Die, but, well, look, they've done that thing, (laughs) whatever the thing might be. Um, And, well, McCann in Australia, just as they are globally, really is proving that creativity is the only way to survive and they are a great creative force again and, as a result, a great effective force again.
2: Well, Ben, uh, thank you very much for your time and welcome back.
4: Thank you very much. Fabulous to be back.
3: Before we go, Budget Direct announces the launch of its new Budget Direct Money Manager app. The new app is a smart and easy way to track all of your personal finances in one place. Budget Direct is also pleased to confirm that it's providing the new Money Manager app for free to all Budget Direct customers. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website.
2: And that is it for this week's Mumbrella Cast. Don't forget to take out your trial subscription to Mumbrella Pro to see those new agency report cards we were talking about.
3: And please do give us a rating on your podcast service of choice.
2: Thank you, Viv. Thank you. Thank you, Zoe. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Toodle pep.